Our scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 4 to 12. The, uh, the title of the sermon today, uh, so usually you probably only hear it in more ironic or comedic settings. You know, cartoon characters will say, be afraid, be very afraid. I don't know how many of you are old enough to know the origin of the phrase. It was the 1986 classic sci-fi thriller remake of The Fly. That's right. Jeff Goldblum, that's right, excellent Reference there. So Seth Brundle had figured out how to teleport. They break down his atoms in this box, put them back together in this box. Everything was fine until he accidentally got a fly in box one with him, and the machine put them all back together as one. And then he began, well, I don't want to ruin the movie for you. You'll want to watch it. It's an excellent, like I said, it's a classic. It's right up there with Moby Dick and, all right, maybe not. But at one point, Seth uh, has lured his girlfriend into his lab and uh, he's going to teleport with her and they're going to be one uh, in like the science fiction sort of way. He wants to meld with her. And she says, well, I'm afraid. And he says, you don't need to be afraid. Don't be afraid, he says, but... At that moment, Veronica, Gina Davis, has broken into his lab because she has figured out what is going on. And she says to the girl, no, be afraid. Be very afraid. Being afraid is interesting. Like the sense of fear is a thing that we sometimes pursue and sometimes avoid. Sometimes we like to be frightened. It's why people go to haunted houses around Halloween. We like that sense of being frightened. Or if you don't like haunted houses, it's why people ride roller coasters, because it gives you this false sense of danger. It's Now, if you don't like roller coasters, I do want to at least remind you, it's a false sense of danger like it it would do no business model any good to actually put you in danger on every single ride you rode in their park that doesn't that there's no profit from that it's a false sense of danger kids it's a false sense of danger everyone everyone should love roller coasters so, I mean, I'm just going to, I'm going to put that out there. It's not with this. Maybe that'll be our next book study. Our next, you know, how can I love roller coasters the way Christ wants me to love roller coasters? We'll, we'll get together, we'll have bacon, and then we'll go to King's Dominion. So there's things that we're afraid of that we shouldn't be afraid of, like roller coasters. Uh, there's things that we're afraid of, but there are also things that we're afraid of, um, that are more life-altering than roller coasters, aren't there? I mean, there's some things that we're afraid of that are, 
that are debilitating. Like there's some things that we fear that we like we need like we need legitimately like help like dealing with or handling not even overcoming our fears but just living with a fear that that can alter the way I choose to live my life. There's some things that we ought to be afraid of. You know, a child who's not afraid of fire or the oven is going to get burned. Like, you should fear things that are frightening. There's other times, though, that maybe we should be afraid, and and frankly, we're not. In this next passage, Jesus addresses matters that that cause us to fear, that maybe they shouldn't cause us to fear. And then other matters that maybe we're not even thinking much about, but maybe we should be afraid of those things. It's strange that here in this passage, Jesus is telling us to be afraid when, as, as Rich and others have pointed out, the most frequent Command or encouragement in Scripture is don't don't be afraid. And yet here is Jesus saying, oh, be afraid. Be very afraid. Is there a proper place for fear in our lives? Is all fear sinful or inappropriate? And how do we live our lives, even as Peter encouraged in his letter, not fearing anything that is frightening. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke 12, beginning in verse 4. I tell you, my friends... Do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. 
The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So as we look at this passage, there's three things I want us to consider. Uh, Three things that we are often afraid of. Afraid of being caught. Afraid of being killed. And afraid of being cast off. And whether these are the actual things we ought to be afraid of or if there are other things rather than these. Now, for the first point, we do have to back up three verses and kind of look at the first three verses of chapter 12. Remember, these chapter and verse headings didn't even come for over a thousand years after uh, the canon of the Old and New Testaments were completed. And so uh, this just flows right out of... uh, what Jesus was, the conversation he was having with the with the Pharisees and the scribes. And so in one sense, I wanted Rich to go all the way through those three verses because it summarizes the woes or the dangers of the Pharisees and the scribes, this hypocrisy that is going on. But um, it also is sort of this bridge, these three verses. So first Jesus is having dinner with Pharisees, and lawyers, and the conversation he's having with them is being overheard by others. So he's speaking to them, but the point is that others overhear what he's saying. But now he's speaking, and he tells us he's speaking directly to his disciples. But as we'll see, his conversation with his disciples is intended to be overheard. It's intended that the crowds hear what he's saying. In fact, it tells us that the crowds, thousands of people are pressing in on him, but he begins to address his disciples, but he's doing it in a way that he expects what he's saying to be overheard by the crowds. And in verses 1 to 3, he said, we're told, you know, in the meantime, thousands of people had gathered together. They were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed in on the housetops. So Jesus is saying, beware or be concerned, be anxious, be afraid of the leaven of hypocrisy the leaven of the pharisees and he 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 makes it clear he's speaking about hypocrisy what is leaven leaven is this slow silent secret worker like leaven works unseen it's it works behind the scenes and pretty soon it affects the entire loaf of bread like there's not, you can't put leaven in dough and it not affect the entire lump. Likewise, hypocrisy is secret and silent and slow. And it doesn't affect a single part of your life without affecting your entire life. Hypocrisy isn't a thing that just exists in a corner. It exists and when it takes Hold it, it affects and infects your entire life. The trouble is, we're usually more afraid of being caught than of being hypocrites. 
I'd rather look like I'm doing well than get well. Or in the words of of that great theologian and his followers, Charles Wright and the 103rd Street Rhythm Band, it's not what you're doing when you're doing what you're doing. I'm sorry, it's not what you look like when you're doing what you're doing. It's what you're doing when you look like what you're doing is what you're doing. I know. I'll say it again just in case I totally screwed it up. It's not what you look like when you're doing what you're doing. It's what you're doing when you're doing what you look like you're doing. Expressious. Sorry. The rest of the song is kind of off in la-la land, express yourself, whatever. But once you unpack the saying, it's not what you look like when you're doing what you're doing because that's hypocrisy. All we care about is what I look like. What do I look like when I'm doing what I'm doing? What matters is, what is it that matters? What matters is what you're doing when you look like you're doing what you're doing. So it's not what you look like, it's what you're doing. And in hypocrisy, we would say it's not what you're doing, it's what you look like. Sin in our hearts is a lot like mushrooms. Uh, It thrives in the dark and it feeds on poop. I mean, this is this is one of the reasons that moms don't really like mushrooms because they can't get over that. Like it, it lives in manure piles, but but this is this is sin. Sin in your heart, it thrives on the darkness like it grows best in the dark and it feeds on lies. Either the lie of it doesn't matter. Or the lie of, if they knew, they would totally reject you. If anyone knew that this is what you're going through, oh my goodness, you better not let anyone know about that. That's awful. You're, you might be the most disgusting human in the world. This is, how, this is how then we learn to cope with it. We just bury it. We push that somewhere deeper and darker, and we don't let anyone know. The cure for hypocrisy is the same as the cure for mushrooms. You need light, and you need to cut off the food supply. You need light and truth. I'm not saying that, you know, every sin you ever commit should be announced to everyone. I mean, we don't have like a, an open mic time during our times of confession, that's probably wise. Uh, I am saying, is there someone? Is there someone that you can say, hey, I'm struggling. Hey, I'm, I'm not doing well with this. Are there a couple of people? Like parents, are your, are your, is, it, is it safe at your kitchen table to say, I'm not doing well with this? Is it safe 
at home to say, I'm struggling? Or does your home feel more like a place where darkness and poop are what's needed for for the household to gel? I remember there was a time that there was this, there was a habit in my life that I was just trying to be done with. And I think I've shared this before, but, uh, and I had tried New Year's resolutions and I, you know, sometimes I would make it past the expected April 13th or January 13th, excuse me. Uh, usually not though. And then one year I knew I was trying to be done with this again. And I knew, I'd known for like a year or two what it was going to take to be done with it. I was going to have to tell my wife I was trying to stop doing this. And I didn't want to. Because part of it was I didn't want to admit to her that I was doing it anyway. Though, you know, truth be told, she, you know, your wives are smarter than you think they are. She knew. But it was true, though. The moment I brought her in on it, it wasn't even like that was actually the last conversation we ever had about it. Like she never, she didn't have to become my mommy and ask me how I was doing with these things. But the moment I admitted to her, I'm trying to be done with this, was enough. And it wasn't even, like it wasn't even a draw as much. Or at least when there was the draw, I was able to say, no, no. I've already told my wife I'm trying to do this. And, you know, there is a positive side to peer pressure. It's not all bad. But the fear of being caught, that's often our false fear. Rather than the fear of being caught, shouldn't we fear hypocrisy or fear uh, what happens as sin continues to take root and stay? But that's not the only fear we have. It's not even our most basic fear. R.C. Sproul uh, once very candidly and vulnerably admitted uh, toward the end of his life in an interview, he said, it's not death I'm scared of. I'm afraid of dying. And if a man of Dr. Sproul's faith and wisdom can admit that, wouldn't it be wise for us to admit that one of our basic fears is the fear of dying? And Jesus addresses this fear, this fear of dying, this fear of being killed, and he addresses it sharply and he addresses it kindly. First, sharply. He says, listen, if you're going to fear death, at least fear eternal death. Those who can kill the body can do nothing to the soul. But the one who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell? Like almost literally, Jesus says, of him, you should be afraid. Be very afraid. Like in the Greek, it's this double emphasis. Fear him. You know, Proverbs 1, 7, maybe you've had your children or you've memorized this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
And that's certainly true. In that sense, the the idea of fear, even the word for fear, it's this reverence, this honoring, this uh, holding as holy. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Like he's not saying uh, respect the one who can cast your soul into hell. He's saying be afraid. Because death is not the end. Like death on earth for all humanity is a doorway, or in the language that we use at Hope of Christ regularly, it is simply the next step on the journey of your immortal soul's existence. And so worse than death is death that ends in hell. I know that hell is not a popular topic, at least today. We don't talk about it. We don't even talk about it much here at Hope of Christ. Do you know who spoke the most about death in the Bible? And it wasn't Moses. He, wrote five, he writes five books. The first five books of the Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about hell. It's not Paul. He writes 13 books in the New Testament. There's only 27 books. If he had just written one more, he could have had like over half the books of the New Testament. That's right. Yeah, 13, 27. Yeah. Not Paul. Jesus talks more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven. Why? Because Jesus wants you to know for absolute certainty whose you are. And he is not against making sure that you know that if you are not his you have much to be afraid of. Four uncomfortable truths that Jesus lays out in Scripture about hell. One, hell is real and people will be there. This goes against this sort of universalism that's so popular that everyone goes to heaven. That's not what Jesus believes about hell or teaches. Second, Hell is a place of existence. It's not a place of non-existence. Hell is an actual place where you will exist. It's not annihilationism. It's not that you'll disappear into nothingness. No, you will exist and it will be awful. Third, Jesus' teaching on hell tells us that hell is eternal. It does not end. It's not some uber purgatory, that you pay for your sins for maybe a century, maybe a millennia, and eventually get out. He says, hell is eternal. And the fourth thing that Jesus makes clear in his teaching on hell is that hell is earned. Hell is deserved. It is exactly what we receive and deserve when we live our lives saying, I do not want to know God as he describes himself. 
I do not want to follow God as he leads. And I do not want to receive mercy from God as he offers. Hell is for those. And Jesus will finally say, okay. Okay. As C.S. Lewis put it. Either we will say, thy will be done. Or one day Christ will say to us, thy will be done. But Jesus doesn't just aim to scare just for the fear factor of it. The whole purpose in scaring us about hell is, if you'll mind the phrase, to scare the hell out of us. So that we might say, what must I do? What How can I change that journey? What would it take? He wants you to know there's another way. That's why I say he's talking to his disciples so that the crowds can eavesdrop. Because are the disciples in danger of this path? I mean, they would be. But but, but they're not. He starts it with friends. Isn't that amazing? He starts it with friends. I tell you, my friends. It's the only place outside of the Gospel of John. Not in Matthew, not in Mark, not even anywhere else in Luke. One place right here that he calls his disciples his friends. My friends. He says, be afraid. And then immediately says, but if you belong to God, if you are God's child, you have nothing, absolutely nothing to be afraid of. If you belong to God, you have nothing to be afraid of. He's, and he says, look, look at the sparrows. I mean, you can go to the marketplace and buy two sparrows, five sparrows for two copper coins. And God knows sparrow number four. Like God knows all five sparrows. It's not like, you know, the middle one, because it's the middle one or the, the, the first and the second and the last. God knows sparrow number four, like by name, knows everything about it. Nothing can happen to sparrow number four. Without God's plan, God has an inventory of your hair. Like this is how OCD God's concern for you is. He has an inventory of your hair. And nothing can happen to any of your hair without God's knowledge and plan. So you have things to take up with him, some of you. Others of you are like, I praise you, God, that you've not made me like other men. (laughs) And if God has that much care for the, the history and future of your hair, do you think maybe he cares about you? How beautiful this passage about be afraid. He says, so don't be afraid. If you are God's child, this is nothing that should 
concern you. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. I know the cadence was off, but some of the kids will recognize that as the Heidelberg Catechism first question because Jacob and Myra taught it to them. And if your kid had the delight of being in that class, you must have them recite it for you because it's an incredibly, it's a very amusing rap. But we get to that end. The Holy Spirit makes me wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for Him. And you think, aha, I knew it. I knew I still had something to be afraid of. Afraid of being cast off. You don't understand. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I struggle with. You don't know all the ways that, that I've denied Jesus' love and turned my back on God's ways and on God's invitation. Everyone who acknowledges Jesus before men will be acknowledged by Jesus before angels. What does that mean to acknowledge Jesus before men? To, to confess Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. To acknowledge who Jesus is entirely according to Scripture. Not, not according to the Jesus we invent. Not like, and I know it's too cute, but like not like the Talladega Nights, you know, sweet baby Jesus or the ninja Jesus, but Jesus as he is revealed in Scripture. Like to acknowledge Jesus, to confess Jesus as who he is, is to receive who he is. And I've used this example before. I mean, I mean we can't. I can't say that I acknowledge who Ron is unless I acknowledge everything about Ron. Like, I can't say I acknowledge who Ron is, and people's like, oh, yeah, the guy, the officer in the Marine Corps? We're like, well, I mean, no. I mean, my Ron 
is a sous chef. And he makes a mean beet salad. And uh, but that's the Ron that I know. Like, well, and I don't think you know Ron then. Oh, no, I do. Like, big, burly, beat you up with his thumb, Ron? I was like, oh, no, no, Ron's a ballerina. <laughs> I mean, at least my Ron. Listen, I, I don't judge your view of Ron. Don't judge my view of Ron. How? Like, let's be a little bit more open with each other. Can't we be just accepting? And eventually you have to be like, listen, it's fine. You don't know Ron. Like, I don't know who you know, but it ain't Ron. Like, acknowledging Jesus before men is not, it's not just like, oh, I get to pick what I like about Jesus and discard the parts I don't like about Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the son of God. Do you see that this is like a subtle way of Jesus saying, I'm God. You acknowledge me before men. I'll acknowledge you before the angels. If we acknowledge Christ on earth, Christ will acknowledge us in heaven. What is it that Christ acknowledges about us? He's already given us the hint at the beginning, hasn't he? This is my friend. Like, like those are the first words out of Jesus' mouth. Because Elona acknowledged Jesus on earth. Like she, she got to heaven and Jesus said, this is my friend. This is my friend. Not because of anything she had done, but because of what Christ had done. Because she realized and recognized he died for her sins. And so she had nothing to fear. She had nothing to fear in death. Because she had acknowledged Christ before men. And Jesus acknowledged her before the angels. He said, I want you to meet my friend. Yes, he says, if you deny me, I'll deny you. And maybe you're thinking, aha, there it is. Peter denied Jesus three times. Paul's whole life was denying Jesus until Christ broke in and snagged him. Perhaps you're thinking, you don't understand, I've denied Jesus. I do understand, I've denied Jesus. Repent, confess, be forgiven. Jesus says, look, you speak a word against me, you'll be forgiven. Just repent. Uh, this is why I came. I came because the world is full of Christ deniers. I came so that you could be delivered from that and saved. And I know we wonder, what is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit then? Well, what is the work of the Holy Spirit what is his main function? The Holy Spirit was sent to testify to the work of Christ, to point us to the gospel and apply the gospel to our hearts. 
See, the way we understand how the Trinity kind of works out all of salvation is that, that the Father plans our salvation. He planned salvation before the foundations of the earth, before he had created a world in which we would sin and fall. He had planned our salvation. And the Son agrees to the plan. The Son says, in, at the moment, at the right time, I will go and I will die and I will make a way. And the Holy Spirit says, and I will apply this. I will bring this to the, I will convict hearts of sin and draw men back to us. Blasphemy of, against the Holy Spirit is, is the persistent, unrepentant resistance against the work of the Holy Spirit and his message concerning Jesus Christ. This, Jesus says, will not be forgiven. That you will consistently, persistently live your life saying, I don't need Jesus. Jesus says, eventually, he will say, okay. If you are worried that you are there, then you're not. Like, if you're worried that you have denied, like, what the work of the Holy Spirit is conviction of sin. So to deny the Holy Spirit is to not worry about whether or not you're denying the Holy Spirit. It sounds weird, but it's part of the help when we feel that conviction of our sin to just turn to God and be forgiven. John 6, Jesus says, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Romans 8, those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. God will not lose you. The last book that the last letter Paul wrote was Second Timothy, writing to young pastor, encouraging him to encourage the church. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Now, just briefly, I know we're pushing our time limits here, but 
Like I always read all these passages in Scripture about dying with Christ as, oh, we have to embrace a, a life of death. But I have to tell you, as I read this, it was so much more, it was just so much more simple than that. If we die with Christ, we will live with him. If you die with Christ, you will live with him. Yes, there is an endurance that we are called to. But how beautiful the promise that if we're faithless, he remains faithful. Because he can't deny himself. Let's pray. Only you, Jesus, could give a lesson on all the things we ought to be afraid of in order to tell your children we have nothing to be afraid of. God, I pray that that we would trust you. God, I thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you you call us your friends. I pray that that none would let this day end if they have not received that friendship. That you who know everything that we've done Pursue us and woo us and want us as your own. And would we simply come to you and admit and confess and receive and trust you? You will never cast us out. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.